All righty, friends. Let's make our way to our seats. Edward. How's it going? Praise the Lord. You all excited to be here? Nothing like being together. Amen. Do you believe that people can change? Yes? A lot of people don't. A lot of people don't believe that you can change. You basically, if, if you appear changed, it's basically because you got really good at faking it. You got really good at acting, right? Um, but what do, what do we believe? You believe ultimately people can change, right? Um, usually I find when you hear that someone like, no, it's not possible for people to change, usually that's people that can't change themselves, right? They, they can't change something about themselves, so they make that claim um, to kind of justify it, you know what I'm saying? So Scripture teaches us something slightly different. Um, people don't just need change in their life. People don't just need to adapt and to change. What people actually need, according to Scripture, is something called resurrection. Jesus did not come to make bad men good. He came to make dead men live, right? What we need is actual uh, resurrection, a changing of a dirty heart and making it clean. Yes? People don't just need change, they need resurrection. The problem is that people are dead and they need to be made alive again. When you understand this problem of sin in our lives... What we need is a holy God to intervene and to raise us from the dead. Today, friends, we're talking about a giant of giants, one of the most intimidating and phenomenal and inspiring men who, of all Christendom. And that man is Saul of Tarsus, who became the Apostle Paul. Very intimidating to preach about this man. Very intimidating to study about this man because he just, there's just no one like him. This, this man's responsible for 80, 90% of the New Testament. You understand? That's a big deal. All the letters he wrote, he is the most quoted human in history, the Apostle Paul. And today we're going to talk about him. Remember, we're going through our Great Physician series. We're talking about Jesus' encounter and his dealing with individuals. Now, those of you that know your Bible a little bit, you'll know that, well, the Apostle Paul wasn't one of the disciples. He, he wasn't walking around with Jesus. And In fact, uh, chances are he never actually met him face-to-face. -face. But in the book of Acts, we pick up the life of uh, Saul of Tarsus. We see this encounter that Paul has with the resurrected Son of God. And that's what we're going to dive into in Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 1. We're going to read about this man's conversion. You ready? Hallelujah. Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way he found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. That was Saul. As he was approaching Damascus, 
on his mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. The voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. That's called getting told. Verse 7, the men with Saul stood speechless, for they heard a sound of someone's voice, but they saw no one. Saul picked himself up off the ground, but he, when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus. He remained there blind for three days, and he did not eat or drink. Now there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord spoke to him in a vision, calling, Ananias! Yes, Lord, he replied. The Lord said, Go over to Straight Street, to the house of Judas. Then you will get there. When you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying to me right now. That's very intense. I have shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so that he can see again. But Lord, exclaimed Ananias, I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem. He is authorized by the leading priest to arrest anyone that calls upon your name. Basically, he's saying, Lord, are you sure? Pretty please. Are you sure? But the Lord said, go. For Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings, as well as to the people of Israel. Now listen to this. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. Open our hearts. Open our ears. And everybody said, Amen. Acts tells us a considerable amount of Paul's story. Acts, the book, was written by Luke, who was a guy that spent a considerable amount of time with Paul. G. Campbell Morgan ex- describes Paul brilliantly when he says, In history, however, Paul stands out. A pioneer missionary, fundamental theologian, and an ecclesiastical statesman in these records greater than all the apostles and standing above any other that has risen in the church in the history of the church. There's just no one like this man Saul who then becomes Paul. He describes himself as a Hebrew of Hebrews, which basically he's saying that there, I was born from a Hebrew father and a Hebrew mother. I am Hebrew through and through. And the three most important things you need to know about this man are basically right there on the screen. To to get an entire idea of who the Apostle Paul was, these are the biggest parts of his character that actually have major impact in his ministry. First thing, he was a Jew. He wasn't just a believing Jew. He was a religious Pharisee a super-religious, lived-the-law-to-the-letter Jew. He also was raised in a town that was in Tarsus, which is basically a place that is surrounded in drowning in Greek culture. So the Apostle Paul not only knew his own people's heritage very, very well because of his studies, but he also knew Greek culture in all of the surrounding areas and provinces around. He was an expert in culture at this time. Also, to make it even better and more interesting, he was a Roman citizen, which was an absolutely invaluable thing to be at that time, a citizen of Rome, which is also something that plays a major role in Paul's ministry later on in the book of Acts. 
He says himself, speaking of himself, Paul says that he was a man, a Pharisee, found blameless, which means Paul rigorously obeyed the law. Like any Pharisee of that time, they meticulously obeyed the law of Moses. Now, what I found, when we deal with things in our life, when we have things in our background, a lot of times... These stories and struggles that you have, I want you to know something, that the Lord wants to take your past. He wants to take the struggles that you've gone through, and He wants to transform those things into sermons. He has a, the, the, the stuff you've gone through. The Holy Spirit has a way of turning these stories, these things you've gone through, and turn them around on its head and to turn it into a blessing. Not just for you, but a blessing for others that need to hear that story. You ever thought about that? Did you know that you have a story? You have a story. God has brought you through something that to Him is valuable. You have a story to tell. You have a life that you have learned some things along the way. Some of you might realize some of you have realized like everything you've gone through is things the Lord has taught you. Others in this room, maybe you haven't quite seen that yet, that the garbage you have gone through or the garbage you're currently going through is actually stuff that the Lord intends to use for good. You just haven't seen it yet. Sometimes it takes a little bit longer time. Sometimes it takes an understanding and a realization in our own heart. But what is going on here is you have the background of the Apostle Paul and the Lord looks down and sees this wicked man who is slaughtering and, and going after to arrest every single Christian, Saul absolutely believed that Jesus was a heretic and should have been crucified. And the Lord looks at Saul and says, that's my guy. I don't know about you, but that's crazy. To see one of your worst enemies, so to speak, and say, wouldn't it be amazing if they converted? You ever think about that? That's basically what the Lord's idea is. And we see this in Romans 8. We know that all things, in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His good purpose. Let's look at Saul a little bit. Let's go in a little bit of his background and his character. This is a man who's massively ambitious. And, and you have to know this, guys, that ambition in and of itself, it, it's kind of a neutral thing, but almost not. Ambition can be something that absolutely can destroy your life. Being highly, highly ambitious, really what it means at its root is a strong desire to be better than your neighbor. Think about that. To have a strong ambition to succeed, a strong ambition to go beyond, to go further. Most of the time that manifests itself in our hearts, in the hearts of flesh, a desire to be greater and better than our neighbor. Ambition, even though it sounds like something that's going to get you that job promotion or get you that thing you want or get you, whenever we see that, this ambition can be, it sounds like it's something that's going to make things better, but it's, the Apostle Paul had massive ambition. He also was honest, which is a great trait to have, right? He was incredibly intelligent. I got a slide that shows all of these things up on your screen. He's incredibly intelligent. I love Peter. Peter's the best. Because later on in the scripture, Peter mentions when he's describing Paul, he says, our beloved brother Paul, he declares 
that Paul was not so easy to understand all the time. This is fisherman Peter talking about Paul, basically saying, yeah, guys, like all of you normal people like me, fishermen, I understand Paul can be difficult to understand because he's basically, he's like the nerd who's smarter than everyone, but he has to, it's hard for him to dumb down his language. That's Paul. He's, he's the guy that's kind of socially awkward, and you can't really have a conversation too much with him because he's way too sarcastic with you, and he makes you feel stupid. Anybody know friends like that? Come on. <laughs> I hear name calling. That's Paul. He is an unbelievably smart guy. Now, here's the thing, guys. We have to understand intelligence is a very difficult thing. I've seen many, many people, they are very, very smart people. I mean, they make me feel so dumb, <laughs> and they have. But I see some people that get so smart. Now, that intelligence is a gift that can be used magnificently for the kingdom, or it can be used magnificently for the devil. When you are, if you've got a gifting of great intelligence, you can do great damage to friends and family, and you can do great damage to the kingdom. That was Saul's story. He was incredibly intelligent. He also was very intense. He did not do anything with a half effort, or he didn't do anything with a sloppiness. We read later in the passage, he says, I press on towards the goal. He's I talking, he's pushing forward and pressing forward. That verb in the Greek is a verb that, inten- that basically marks an intensity of life and action. The, the word that's also used interchangeably with it is persecuting or pressing. And so Paul's describing himself as someone that has this pressing attribute to him that is akin to even persecution. He does not fear pain. What do they say? No pain, no what? No gain. That is this man. He's also a domineering type of guy. He's a guy, maybe he's the loudest in the room when he wants to be. He's a guy that demands a type of presence with the way he talks. He's capable of great anger and biting sarcasm, the theologians say, which is hilarious. There's hope for us, guys. Uh, also, another attribute that we see just through reading through the scriptures is that he's sensitive. He's, he's capable of having a tremendous heart and to be passionate about things that he is interested in or things that he's passionate about. Guys, this... Saul of Tarsus is a guy that you want on your team. He's a guy that if he's on your team, you're the happiest bunch in the world. But if he's not on your team, if he got recruited to that other soccer team or football team, you're going, oh, dang it. This is going to be rough. Because if he's against you, he's going to make your life miserable. Because he's that good and he's that smart. But if he's on your team, you're like, woo! Thank you, Jesus. Hooray. We got that guy. We're going to win. That's who he is. Now, what can Jesus do with such a man? What can Jesus do? This is an explosive personality that we're dealing with. What can Jesus do with a guy like this? Let's turn and look at what Jesus does in this conversion story. Jesus has a knack of picking his mark and ordaining success. When Saul is walking along the road, he's on his horse. Jesus appears, shines his light, and he falls off his horse because it's so intense, and he goes blind. I don't know what I would do if that happened to me. 
but I would be freaking out like I've never freaked out before. Would you? The Lord reveals himself in such a way that Saul is completely overwhelmed, and the first thing out of his mouth is, Who are you, Lord? Like, not, Who are you, ghost? Who are you, strange person? Who are you, Lord? There was no hesitation in his understanding of what was going on. He knew that the God of the universe was speaking to him. And he reveals himself the thing probably Paul wished was the last thing to ever hear in his life. When the Lord says, my name is Jesus, the man you are persecuting. He reveals himself. Now, I want you to capture this, guys. Saul was there to confirm the death of Stephen, the martyr. Now, follow me here. Stephen was the very first martyr in the church. Stephen was being stoned by people around him. But see, the Pharisees weren't legally able to stone people themselves. But don't misunderstand, that wasn't a holiness type of thing. Saul was there to confirm the death of Stephen. Now, when that means confirm, this man, Saul, might might as well have been there giving back massages to the men throwing those stones. When I mean that he confirmed the death of Stephen, he agreed with, supported, and wanted it desperately to happen. For Stephen to be murdered and killed because Saul even gave his stamp of approval on the form, believing that this man was a heretic, I have seen him, he is now dead, justice has been served. That was Saul's attitude, that was his mindset as a Pharisee. Utterly believing that Jesus of Nazareth was dead and gone. Crucified under justice, under truth and righteousness because of the heresy that was claimed to have been made by Jesus. And all of a sudden, speaking out of the clouds, who starts talking? Jesus says, I am Jesus, the one who you're persecuting. And so Paul, Saul at this time, is sitting here thinking, Oh my goodness, oh my goodness, I have been absolutely wrong. Are you seeing this? The revelation that the man I knew was dead is actually alive. And he's speaking to me even now. The scriptures talk about Stephen's martyrdom, and it says that his face shined like an angel when they were stoning him because he was staring in to heaven, seeing Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. Hallelujah. Stephen sits there, and he is stoned to death. And you have to know, guys, don't miss this, this this terrible martyring that happened, you have to know, imagine Paul walking along the road to Damascus blind. He just got spoken to by the Lord. And that memory in his mind of Stephen getting stoned to death for this Jesus. There is no doubt in my mind that that plagued the mind of Saul as he marched all the way to Damascus as a blind man. That terrible thing that happened that he once agreed with was eating away and chiseling away at the thing. This great suffering thing that took place. God used this terrible thing that happened to Stephen. Are you seeing this? Used this terrible suffering that happened to Stephen and flipped it on its head and used that to reach a man like Saul. The Lord has a knack for turning something that's terrible suffering and turning it into diamonds for the kingdom. Diamonds and treasures for you and for me. I remember asking my discipler, 
His name's Daniel. I asked him, Daniel, do you think because I've never suffered like most of my friends, do you think that has hindered my relationship with Jesus? Or does that mean I'm not as close to Jesus as I could be because I haven't suffered? And his reply to me was, uh, was uh, typically brilliant. He says, don't worry, you will. It's a sobering fact. Guys, everyone in this room, listen to me. You're going to suffer. If you haven't already, you're going to go through suffering. It's a promise. Because in this world, this fallen sinful world, that's the reality of what takes place. If Jesus, the Son of God, walked this earth pure and perfect, spotless lamb who never did anything wrong, never sinned, never doubted his father, not even once, had endured that much suffering, why should us, his servants, get any better? Are you following me? Jesus says, you're going to have, you're, take heart. You, in this world, you will have trouble. But what does he say? Take heart. I've overcome the world. Guys, in our suffering, that's where Jesus speaks often the loudest. A man, Samuel Chadwick, wonderful uh, preacher, famous Methodist preacher, he was also a professor at Cliffs College where some of you may know uh, where uh, pr- famous preacher Leonard, Leonard Ravenhill studied underneath in college this Samuel Chadwick. Samuel Chadwick explains, uh, has this analogy in one of his writings, a very, a very well-known famous quote to many people, explaining the blacksmith and his hammer. You know, those blacksmiths, you see those awesome videos where it's like glowing red and they're like, king, like they're hammering the metal, they're pounding away the impurities of the metal. It's like always a dream of mine, but I have no idea how to do it. But it'd be fun. Well, he's explaining this, and this is what he says. Pay attention to this. He says, The smith holds the glowing metal, turning it, lest his stroke fall too often upon the same spot. Directing the blows, the hammer hitting that metal, directing the blows that they may descend at the right moment, tuning, tempering, regulating, till the metal is fashioned to the desired shape. This is what he says. So God holds the soul and regulates the stroke. Sometimes he makes the devil his hammer man. Satan strikes to smash. God regulates the stroke and turns his malice to our perfecting. And the devil sweats at the task of fashioning saints into the likeness of Christ. When the devil attacks you with everything he has... The Holy Spirit is in control at all times, and He will direct that stroke that is meant to destroy you and actually gets you closer to Jesus than you ever have before. What a mighty God we serve. This Saul, when he experiences, sees the martyrdom of Stephen traveling down the road, has this incredible moment where he hears and sees Jesus face to face. He's spoken to Him. He's overwhelmed, and he's... Third time's a charm. Oh, yeah. Jesus' name. You got it, Nathan? Yeah, praise the Lord. That's called, that's called technology. I won't lie. It's technology. Guys, listen to the words of Paul here. These are the, all of these scriptures I'm reading are words straight out of Paul's mouth. 
and when he's talking about suffering. Romans chapter 5, he says, More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Hope does not put us to shame, he says, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That's the man that was knocked off his horse. That's the man that had that rich, wealthy, lavished lifestyle as a, as a Pharisee and who gave all of that away so he could be a follower of Jesus. And as Paul is sitting in prison suffering for Jesus, you would think he would have every reason in the world to be bitter, every reason in the world to focus on his pain and go, you don't understand what I'm going through, Luke and Peter. You don't get it. But he never had that attitude, not even once. He says these things, guys, no man in history has written such great words about suffering that gives us understanding of how we should suffer. Philippians chapter 1, he says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. If you believe in Jesus, guess what? You have a calling to suffer for His sake. 2 Corinthians Paul says this, for this light, momentary affliction. He's in prison. He's got the worst situation ever. He was shipwrecked. He also experienced his own stoning. He was attempted to be killed multiple times. And he calls it light, momentary afflictions. Paul, what kind of drugs are you doing? That's what, yes, is what I would be thinking. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing us for eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. That's what this man tells the Corinthians. He instructs Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3. He says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Philippians chapter 3, he says these striking words. I pray that you will take these words in. You will read these, this scripture on your own time. You will allow it to bury deep in your heart. He says this, chapter 3, verse 7. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. That was his old life as a Pharisee. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. Pay close attention to this. He says, I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. Don't you? I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another I will experience the resurrection from the dead. No man would ever say these words unless you endured the suffering, and the hardships that Saul had endured. Guys, how can suffering be good? Some of you might be thinking that, like, Daniel, you don't know what I'm going through, man. What, like, when I'm go what's going on right now is awful. It's horrible. It's horrible. How on earth can suffering be turned into something that's good? Because the more you suffer, the more you endure pain, the more you endure things things that you should not be enduring, the little bit more you relate to a Jesus who also suffered. Do you see this? 
the little bit more you suffer, that's a little bit more you relate to Jesus. That's a little bit more. Because you know who understands your suffering better than anyone? It's Jesus. He knows what you're going through. Many times we deal with three things. Emotional pain, physical pain, and spiritual pain. Some of you are going through one of those things. Emotional pain, spiritual pain, and physical pain. And you're prayed and asked the Lord to deliver you and to have it removed. You know who endured those things more than anyone. Jesus endured all three of those things. Physical pain because of the obvious. Jesus' crucifixion. Spiritual pain, having to drink the cup of God's wrath, though he was not deserving. And on the cross, he's saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That spiritual agony of not being close to the Father for that moment because our sin was on his shoulders. You think Jesus endured spiritual pain? Absolutely. Emotional pain, what about that? Did Jesus endure emotional pain? Pick your story. When John the Baptist was beheaded, and killed for no reason whatsoever. Jesus' friend, he wanted just to be alone. He wanted just to get away to be alone with God because of his friend. How about when he was betrayed by one of his closest men, by Judas? Jesus knows and identifies with your pain. You're going through emotional pain tonight. Jesus knows what you're going through. He knows what it feels like to be betrayed. According to Paul, all that suffering, all that suffering and pain is worthwhile because it blesses you with the closeness of Jesus. Do you want to be close to Jesus? Because I do. With all my heart, I want to be close to Jesus. I want to know him so personally that I could be in prison persecuted, beaten up, tortured, and a smile on my face because I now share in the sufferings of Christ. Guys, we need to seek Jesus with that type of hunger. A missionary you must know about. I challenge you, just look up on the internet, get one of his books, a a very, very incredible story of a man who suffered greatly. His name is Adoniram Judson, the very first American missionary to travel overseas. Fascinating guy. He was raised a church kid, absolutely brilliant. No one one in his classes were as smart as him. He went to college at the young age of 16. You know, no big deal. Get your petroleum engineering degree at the age of 16. No big deal. That wasn't him. That was just making that up. In college, you know, 1788 petroleum engineering degree. Uh, Adoniram Judson goes to college. He meets, he's a church kid, right? So he meets a friend named Jacob Ames. Jacob Ames is a deist, and they've got quite a rambunctious group of friends that are all deist. And he basically claims and gives Jacob Ames all the credit for deconverting Judson. So in college, Adoniram Judson, as a church kid, goes there and he backslides and basically walks away from faith in Jesus. Now, after graduating, Judson is traveling around and he finds himself staying in a particular inn for the night. But he didn't get much sleep that night because in the next room, 
As he's trying to sleep in this inn, the next room, there's a man screaming out in pain and agony all night long. And Judson hears the screams as this man in the next room, and he's just like, oh, my goodness. And so these thoughts start racing through Judson's mind. He's thinking, man, is there really nothing after death? This man is going through such torture, so much pain. Is there really just nothing after this? And he's kind of going through this terrible mindset. The next morning, he inquires to the manager about this guy and says, what, what was going on last night? How was that man? How was he doing? And he says, yeah, unfortunately, that man passed away last night in his sleep. You know, and it's such a shame, too, because he was a brilliant man who went to Providence College. And Judson's mouth dropped. He says, Providence College? Wait a minute. That's where I went to school. What was his name? And the manager said, oh, I think it was Ames, Jacob Ames, something like that. And Judson realized the truth, that one of his closest friends was dying in the next room, and he didn't even know it. And as he was walking away from the inn, his college roommate, his buddy that actually deconverted Judson, he was in the next room in pain and agony, and he never knew it. And his friend had died. And stirring through Judson's mind as he leaves this inn, he's walking along. As time passes, that thought in his mind began to permeate and to crack at the stony heart he had inside. And the words ringing in his ear over and over and over, lost I'm lost, I'm lost, I'm lost. And through time, Judson, because of that story, because of what he experienced there, recommits his life to Jesus, and he becomes a missionary. Through that horrible and terrible suffering, his eyes are opened to the truth of Jesus. Eventually, he, his faith, he goes back, is led back to Christ and decides to become a missionary to the Burmese people. He got married, and his story did not even come close to stopping then. He gets married. He has children. They go overseas to preach to the Burmese people. He is known as the first actual successful missionary to the Burmese. And all three of his children become sick and pass away. He gets thrown in jail because the Burmese people got in a war conflict with England. He was thrown in jail because he was a Westerner and he was suspected. And 19 months in prison... Suffering, terrible amounts of suffering, his wife desperate to try to sneak him food so he can survive. After he gets out of prison, tragically, his wife also passes away. He remarries, and he just endures so much suffering and pain. But you know what happens? Forty years in Burma, he translates the Bible into Burmese, and hundreds and hundreds of people are reached for Christ. He's one of the hero missionaries that we love to talk about and read about. Edward just did a project on him for the internship. This man accomplished only what could be accomplished through Christ. Do you see? Our sufferings are momentary and light afflictions. How does a man like that keep going after losing so much? Because our sufferings for Jesus' sake are momentary, light afflictions. And the more you suffer... The closer to Jesus, the closer to Jesus you get. So what's that question we asked earlier? Can people really change? Can people really, really transform and change? Technically, no. You cannot change in your own power, but only through resurrection power. I'm going to ask Nathan to return, and I'm going to close with this. 
Friends, are you looking for change in your life? Are you going through suffering? Are you going through pain? Many times we struggle through pain that we did not ask for. Are you dealing with physical pain tonight? Are you dealing with spiritual pain? Or maybe some of us here are dealing with emotional pain. I'm here to tell you that going through that pain with Jesus brings you closer to Jesus and you hear His voice louder than you've ever heard before. What brings us that close with these, these incredible words spoken from the Apostle Paul himself? I'll read them again. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised Him from the dead. I want to suffer with Him, sharing in His death, so that one way or another, I will experience the resurrection from the dead. How do you experience that resurrection? Because Jesus, the Son of God, was crucified, and He was resurrected first. Are you looking for a change in your life? Do you badly need something to change? We read these words, the scripture that we read all through the New Testament and the letters. What the Lord is speaking to us tonight, I believe, is this. Do not reject your suffering. Friends, I look myself in the mirror in the morning and I say this to myself. And if you give me permission, I'll say it to you as well. Don't reject your suffering. Don't turn away from it because it can be a blessing if you draw close to Jesus. Do not rely on your own strength. You won't make it. You won't make it. Do not rely on your own strength. And place your trust in the resurrection. A famous world leader was talking to Billy Graham. said, Reverend Graham, do you really believe that Jesus was resurrected? I mean, he said all those wonderful things, all the teachings, like there's a lot of wonderful, easy things to believe about Jesus. But really, resurrection? I mean, come on. Billy Graham replies, if I didn't believe in the resurrection, all of everything I believe crumbles and falls to the floor. I have no belief. I have nothing if I have not the resurrection. As the Apostle Paul himself says, if Christ not had been risen from the dead, we're all fools. You know what you need to do if you're suffering? You need to trust in that resurrection. That Jesus conquered sin, hell, and the grave and was risen three days later, ascended on high, and Stephen himself raises his eyes to heaven and sees Jesus standing, not sitting. You have to wonder, why was Jesus not sitting at the right hand of the Father? Like he says earlier, he was standing at the right hand of the Father. And it's almost as though you see Jesus kind of leaning over, wondering, 
What are, what are my people going to do? What are they going to do to Stephen? He's, he is preaching the gospel that I have told him and taught him to preach. What are they going to do? And he's almost on the edge of his seat, as it were, as Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father, looking to see, what are they going to do with Stephen? And they killed him because they denied the truth. But that terrible tragedy, the Holy Spirit uses the Lord took that thing and he planted a seed in a guy like Saul and he was transformed and you and I are here today because the Apostle Paul wrote those words. Are y'all hearing me tonight? Let's stand tonight as we close.